Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and we are welcoming back our friend Isaac Saul. And before I get Isaac on here, just a reminder that uh, Isaac runs this incredible news site. I used to say newsletter, but he's doing so, so much more than the newsletter anymore. It's readtangle.com. It's Tangle. They're putting out videos. They have newsletters. And every time I turn around, they're doing something new. So uh, make sure you check that out. It is it is by far my favorite thing I read every single day. And it's very much in the spirit of this podcast because he presents different opposing viewpoints on an issue. And what I like is then he weighs in and says, what he thinks is right. So it's not just this relativistic exercise. And so with that, Isaac, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Ravi. I, I appreciate the promo, man. Well, I love it. I've, you know, before we even met, I'd been a, a reader of it since probably day one. And I think this is such an interesting time for us to, to have a conversation. And, you know, we we're talking offline, you and I were planning to make this a bit of a delayed episode, but we're putting this up today because as we speak, there's a lot going on in the issues we were planning to talk about. I would say there are two things that stood out to me today on Israel, which is where we'll start. One is Biden spoke to donors today, I think, who's either today or yesterday, saying that Netanyahu should basically change his government, uh, which is quite a thing to say. Uh, I, I happen to agree with it, but it's rare for you know one country to advise another country on its politics like that. And when Netanyahu had weighed in on American politics when Obama was in office, that wasn't looked upon kindly. So that was that definitely signaled something. And then also today, Netanyahu said he would block the Biden administration's post-war plan to have the Palestinian Authority take over Gaza. So basically, he's pushing back against Biden. Biden's pushing back against Netanyahu's government. Things don't look to be uh, going so well between uh, these two allies. No, they're not. I mean, first of all, I think it is remarkable that Biden said this publicly. And I think more than anything else for people trying to understand the context here, I think it should be read as a sign of Netanyahu's weakness, both domestically and internationally. I don't think there's any world in which we hear this kind of rhetoric from the president of the United States at any point in the last few years. And I think the reason Biden feels comfortable saying this. Uh, and to be clear, I think it's implicit there that Netanyahu needs to go, uh, though, you know, right now he's directing this at Netanyahu because he's the prime minister. But the signal he's sending to Israel is that a change is necessary. And I happen to agree, I guess, similar to you, it sounds like. I think Netanyahu is a failed leader, and I don't see any way he could realistically stay in office once this war is over. If I were an Israeli voter, I would want an opportunity to remove him from office right now. But more than anything, I think it's just a reflection of the fact that that is the sentiment in Israel among many Israelis for many different reasons. So if you are a kind of leftist Israeli or someone more moderate, maybe left of center politically, you know, a few months ago, you were probably already out in the streets protesting the judicial reform. If you are somebody closer to the center or maybe just center right, you probably already had some concerns about him because of the legal trouble he's in. You know, not totally unlike Trump, he is somebody who is facing real legal danger down the road. And even for people who have any kind of tepid support for him, that's concerning. And then even if you're a longtime supporter of him as the prime minister, the central reason is that he has been a kind of hardliner Zionist, somebody who's taken a hardline 
perspective, I think, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And the reward for lining up behind him has been a fundamental sense of security in Israel, which, you know, a lot of Israelis I don't think have had over the last two decades. But this attack on October 7th totally reframed that entire conversation. So even if you're somebody who's been in his corner for a long time, that security failure, which he is now not taking any accountability for and blaming on other people, which has also not been received well and shouldn't be received well, is just a massive failure of a proportion that's kind of hard to articulate. So yeah, I think Biden's right. I don't really know. I mean, I don't know. Do you see any future where Benjamin Netanyahu is the prime minister in a year? I mean, I, I can't imagine that, you know, no. given how regularly Israel changes leaders as it is, but also just because of the blowback from what's happened in the last couple of months. No, I, I don't see him hanging on. You know, this was just the tip of the iceberg, by the way, in terms of sort of fraught back and forth between the two countries. There's been more actually happening in the past few days between these two countries. Uh, former U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Martin Indyk, said that Netanyahu is a clear and present danger to his own country. And, you know, among other things, he cited, you know, new reporting that showed that Netanyahu encouraged the, these massive money flows from Qatar to Hamas. Also, you know, tons of reporting about what Israel knew before October 7th and, and failed to act upon. Yeah, and I think like Netanyahu doesn't survive either way, but his complete unwillingness to take any sense of responsibility over this and, you know, certain cases tried to blame the security apparatus, which honestly, the security, you know, the various security leaders have been pretty forthcoming about what they view as their failures and, you know, in sort of cryptic ways have all basically indicated that the senior leaders of most uh, ministries responsible for this are going to step down after they've reached some point of stability. Netanyahu seems to be conspicuously apart from almost anybody else in Israeli government on this. And there's there's obviously a history here, like Golda Meir stepped down after she'd stabilized things in the Yom Kippur War. Like when you have a failure at this magnitude, you tend to step down at the first opportunity when it's a parliamentary system. Yeah. And all it takes even, you know, in, in Netanyahu's case, is a handful of people from his own party who decide that this is enough, which I think is a totally reasonable thing to expect to happen sometime soon, especially as all these news stories continue to break. And then, you know, to kind of the second question you led with there, the fact that he's so brazenly, brazenly saying basically, we refuse to play ball on this kind of US requested idea for, you know, the Palestinian Authority to take some kind of control in, in Gaza after this is all done. That's problematic for a lot of reasons. I mean, first of all, the United States is kind of laying down on the tracks for Israel right now in a lot of ways. I mean, they just vetoed the ceasefire vote at the UN. Biden has, I think, done, had very clear messaging from the beginning of the war that was framing things in in a way that most Israelis and Netanyahu are very comfortable with. And Israel needs the United States support militarily. They need the funding. So all of those things combined, it's got to be a little bit of a voice in the back of your head that's like, is it right to poke this ally in the eye when they're you know, suggesting something that's a relatively moderate solution 
I think, for what we're witnessing. Um, the idea of the Palestinian Authority or some non-Hamas entity taking control of Gaza after this violence ends is not a particularly radical thing to suggest. That's not like something out of the realm of possibilities. So I don't know why Netanyahu's taking that positioning, except for you know the obvious answer I think that's in front of a lot of us, which is that he is a pretty radical leader, actually. And he's not a particularly great prime minister. Um, I don't really know in what way you could qualify his time in office in that way, aside from sort of pointing to some of the economic success that Israel has had in the last couple of decades. But basically, in every other measurement as a leader, I think, again, he has been a failed leader. And I think a lot of people who are longtime supporters of his are kind of coming to that realization and starting to feel that way now. I mean, I know a lot of the people, you know, kind of the the normie Israelis I know, the people who just follow politics the same way your average American might in Israel, who have long been really, really staunch supporters of him, have totally turned on him in the last few months, um, which has been really shocking for me to kind of hear and see and witness. I mean, it would be like, you know, people you know who have always been diehard Trump supporters all of a sudden waking up because of something he did and saying they're never going to vote for him again, which is, you know, not something we see Obviously, so much yeah, in the yeah, United yeah, States. I've seen a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, it's something he said I thought was really interesting, uh, Netanyahu. He said, I will not allow it in the context of saying he wasn't going to support Palestinian Authority takeover of Gaza. He said, I will not allow Israel to repeat the mistake of Oslo. So his sense, and he, and he said Gaza will be neither Hamastan or Fatahstan, you know, whatever. But okay, a couple of things about this. Number one is, I think he, he takes the wrong lessons from Oslo. Like the way I read Oslo was there was, you know, from 93 onwards, there was a ton of momentum for peace in a peace that actually would make the Palestinians and the Israelis better off. And what stopped it was a combination of Hamas agitation internally, which pulled Fatah rightward, and Likud agitation internally to Israel that pulled labor rightward. But more importantly, they took power at various points and killed any prospect of Oslo by expanding settlements and taking aggressive action in the territories. Uh, and in certain cases, just straight up usurping you know, land uh, by sort of you know peaceful Palestinians in the West Bank. And so... He looks at Oslo and says it was a failure because we stood up a Palestinian authority and we're you know, playing the peace game, trying to get peace. I look at it and say, everybody would be better off if you went through with Oslo. But this is the debate, I guess. This is the Likud labor debate in Israel. This is what makes somebody Likud or, or labor is how they view Oslo. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I'm a little confounded. I hadn't seen that quote, but just hearing you read it to me, I'm not entirely sure what the implicit lesson is that he's taking away from that. I mean, because also, you know, the other thing is they responded to the the violence and the agitation from groups like Hamas by basically killing the deal. I mean, it, it ended what was a real potential path towards peace. And the result of that is everything we've gotten in the last two decades leading up to this event. So clearly, you know, that route that Israel went down didn't work. So, you know, if anything, the lesson would have been to do the opposite of that, which was to say, we're not going to let these agitators and this violence from both sides kind of impede the peace process when we're right there on the doorstep of a deal. So like the rational thing in my mind to do would be like, 
look at the last 20 years, last 25 years, we tried this route, it didn't work. So we, we have to lean in on something else. By the way, before you go off of that, what's interesting to me, and people who've listened to our Hamas history know this, you know who else opposes the peace process? Hamas. I think it's notable, right, that nobody has benefited more from Netanyahu's reign than Hamas. They hate the peace process. Anytime there's any semblance of peace on the table, they step up attacks. And as the reporting has shown recently, Netanyahu has funneled tons of money their way because in part, he favors a group that's illegitimate because there's no possibility of peace with Hamas over the more, I would say, more legitimate. I mean, there are all sorts of issues with the Palestinian Authority, but a more legitimate authority in the Palestinian Authority who actually could be a partner for peace. I just find the whole thing fascinating, like how symbiotic those two sides are. Like I used to think of it as like they're symbiotic in ways that maybe they don't even realize. And then now I've looked at the recent evidence say, whoa, maybe maybe it's more explicit than I was even giving it credit for because I, I don't like to be a conspiracy theorist. But it, but it is rather bla- brazen, like how the Netanyahu government has courted and supported Hamas. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't think it's a, I mean, it's certainly not a conspiracy theory. I think there's really good reporting on this that's based on, you know, solid evidence. I think what's even more concerning is just, you know, the way a group like the Palestinian Authority has been treated by the Israeli government, which is that it's, you know, been undermined in basically every way. It's been it's been choked. And because it has such limited resources and such limited kind of latitude or respect from the Israeli government, it has very little power and control in the territory it does oversee in the West Bank, which is obviously clearly occupied by Israel. And so it's been totally delegitimized by the Israeli government. It's been damaged in a way by the Israeli government that has made it basically impossible for it to win over support among the Palestinian people. So, you know, I think this is sort of the central, most poignant criticism of the path that Netanyahu has taken, uh, you know, during his terms as prime minister in Israel is that he basically picked the wrong horse for peace, which then to your point, the question is, you know, did he do that intentionally or did he do that because he's a, a really bad at kind of predicting the future or how things are going to play out? And I think either way, it doesn't look good for him. I think, you know, doing it intentionally is, is a bit worse, but uh, not really understanding that putting your money and support and funding and resources behind, you know, propping up a group like Hamas is going to end badly is just unfathomable. Uh, and again, you know, I'm not an Israeli voter, but if I were, I don't know how there's any way I could back somebody with the record that he now clearly has. So it's a really, really bizarre situation. And I think to your point, again, the reports that we've gotten from the New York Times and the writing that we've seen, the reporting that we've seen on this recently, I mean, it's it's pretty dumbfounding that you know, a few weeks ago, apparently, or a few weeks before this attack, there were, you know, representatives going to Qatar to bolster Hamas and fund them with the kind of rubber stamp of Benjamin Netanyahu. I mean, that's just, it's mind boggling. Yeah. Well, one, one thing to mention on this front, by the way, so the Biden administration, as part of its vision, which by the way, let's stipulate that the Biden administration has put forth a more clear vision for Gaza after this that I have heard yet from the Netanyahu government. 
So I, I want to at least put that forward. The question is, if not the Palestinian Authority, then who is governing Gaza? This has not been answered, at least to my knowledge, in any major way by Israel. But the Biden administration also went further and said that uh, the Palestinian Authority would have to undertake major reforms, purges its aging leadership, set a timetable for elections, and overhaul its security forces. So look, like that may or may not be the right plan. But I think one thing is clear to me is that Netanyahu has not offered anything resembling a specific plan. And this comes as Israel controls about 40% of the territory in Gaza right now. They're pushing south. They're taking on more and more of the tunnel infrastructure, and they seem to be just starting that. I mean, by most estimates, they they have a long way to go to to really gain any meaningful control over the the tunnels. And it seems like a critical step slash battle here is over the control of Khan Yunus, uh, you know, above ground, which is kind of where Hamas seems to be using as their sort of command and control area. But Isaac, my question for you is like, let's say they get all these tactical victories. Where's the strategic victory? What's the next step here? Yeah, I, I, I literally don't know. Um, and, and I don't think a clear cogent plan has been put forward. I think there are some kind of scary options we've seen, like the leaked uh, government documents showing that there are people in Likud who want to see, you know, basically a forced displacement of the Palestinians into Egypt, into Sinai and in northern Egypt, which is pretty much definitionally an ethnic cleansing. Obviously, these people don't have a ton of operational government power right now, but that's something that's been put forth by people sort of in the far right reaches of the Israeli government. So that's one potential outcome. I think the most likely outcome currently is that Israel is going to reoccupy Gaza for an extended period of time and have, you know, the quote unquote operational security which is effectively just, you know, going backwards 18 years in time to what we had pre-2006. And in that case, I mean, really imagining that for a moment, what that means, the people of Gaza living amongst the IDF, who has just gotten done this air bombardment that, you know, Israel is now basically accepting the figures from the Gaza Health Ministry of, you know, 15 to 20,000 people killed, a third of them combatants, meaning two thirds are civilians. Those soldiers are going to go operate amongst this group of people who rightfully is going to loathe them and want vengeance and blood of their own, I'm sure. I mean, this will be a live war. This is not like past you know, ground incursions or two or three day long spates of violence. I mean, this has been two straight months of bombing campaigns where 90% of the country has been displaced internally and thousands and thousands and thousands of people have been killed, which means hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people know somebody who's been killed. I don't know any way, you know, you think like US troops operating in Afghanistan is tricky. I don't know any way the IDF could operate in Gaza with any semblance of safety or security. So that is a terrifying prospect. And aside from some group like the Palestinian Authority coming in and trying to effectively, you know, adopt this leadership role, I don't really see any other option except Israeli occupation being put forward or being surmised by people who really understand what the Israeli army is doing right now. So 
it's very bleak, in my opinion. I think the rejection outright of some kind of Palestinian Authority entity taking control is a terrible, terrible mistake. It's a miscalculation, similar to all the miscalculations that led up to October 7th. And once again, I think the easiest way to avoid that is by removing Benjamin Netanyahu as prime minister and bringing in a leadership group that's a little bit more open-minded and perhaps has different strategies about how to move forward. Because clearly, whatever has been going on for the last 20 years from the Israeli policy side isn't working. And this is, of course, not to absolve Hamas or anybody you know, listening to this to think that I'm kind of justifying Hamas's actions. I'm just saying that Israel is responsible for Israel and they have not kept the country safe in the last two decades and they have not advanced the peace process in the last two decades. And that should be disqualifying for for a leader, in my opinion. Also, Netanyahu should be resigning as soon as this stabilizes. His opinion on who takes over afterwards should be a very limited relevance to all of this, right? You know, it's like, you know, there's a, there's a middle ground he could take here, but he he's so, you know, he's so blinded by hubris that he can't see it, which is what he could say is, look, I'm not going to speak to the post-war reality because my job is to achieve a point of equilibrium and stability and hand it over to somebody else. And that would help, right? That would help. We could let other people, and you could say maybe there's a working group of yada, yada, yada who are responsible for that. But right now, we just need to achieve this objective. Get the hostages home, kill as many Hamas people as possible, which as we've talked about is tough to quantify. Israel said it's killed more than 7,000 militants, by the way. More than 8,400 Palestinians have died in Gaza, according to the Palestinian health authorities. They say it's two-thirds women and children, and there's still, I think, about 140 hostages there right now. Uh, and we talk about the strategic objectives. I'm sure you've seen this. The Economist YouGov came out with a poll last week uh, of 18 to 29 year olds, and they found that one in five think the Holocaust was a myth. One in five, uh, and another 30 percent of young people said they they couldn't take a position on it. They couldn't agree or disagree. So you have a plurality. You have you have a majority of Americans, young people, who either think the Holocaust is a myth or really can't give you an opinion on it. Isaac, what is going on here? It's terrifying. Um, you know, as an American Jew, I find it particularly scary. I mean, look, there's sort of like, there's this very interesting thing that happens, I think, w- with anti-Semitism that is very unique to it. Um, and obviously, you know, bigotry against particular religions or races or classes of people is not unique. But um, one of the things that's really fascinating about anti-Semitism is Jews are often, you know, framed as both being these sort of like lower class, dirty, conniving, lying people. And they're also, on the other hand, like very powerful, all-encompassing. They're kind of given a different sort of lens that they operate in than other racial or ethnic or religious minorities and then also held to really different standards in interesting ways. I think like a great illustration of this is um, this whole college campus, you know, presidents who have testified before Congress and, you know, because of whatever brain rot is happening by trying to avoid live wires, uh, you know, on the national stage, couldn't really articulate that a calling for a genocide against Jews would constitute harassment on a college campus which obviously if a member of Congress asks you that, the the 
answer is really simple. You just say yes. Explicit calls yeah. for genociding Jews is harassment and you know a threat of violence and incitement of violence. But they couldn't do that, and um, you know once they couldn't do that, there's this blowback and a lot of you know rightfully angered Jews across the country, rightfully angered normal non-Jews across the country who I think care about this kind of stuff. And we saw Liz McGill, the president of Penn, where, you know, I'm, I'm from Philadelphia, so she's right next door to where I live, resigning as president. And then what that does is it sort of confirms all these classic anti-Semitic tropes of like, yeah. oh, you see, like she said something. You're damned if you do, it, damned if yeah, you don't. Yeah, said something yeah. bad about the Jews and she lost her job. And it's like, well, wait a second. What actually happened is she refused to say that calling for the genocide of Jews would constitute harassment. And then she got fired for saying that or forced out for saying that, which is kind of a reasonable reason to get forced out of your job as president of a college where you're supposed to be responsible for making students feel safe. But it's like she both in her mind didn't think she could just say unequivocally, yes, that's harassment. And then on the other end of this entire event, the Jews get reframed again as being like, oh, the all-powerful people who forced out the president. And it's like, yeah, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. So it's very weird. It's very scary. I think one big thing to remember is that a lot of college kids just don't know what the hell they're talking about. And we should be okay <laughs> sort of accepting that. I mean, I saw this incredible Wall Street Journal article. I don't know if you caught this where this reporter hired a polling firm to go out to some of these campus protests and they asked a bunch of college students chanting from the river to the sea if they could name the river and the sea that they that the slogan was referencing <laughs> and 40 47% of them couldn't do it uh you know they said things like the euphrates or the nile or you know the atlantic ocean or the red sea which is a lake. I mean, in their defense, it is it is just marginally a river. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's, I wouldn't call it one of the mightiest of our rivers. It's really, really, really jarring, and um, you know, and that, and I think that is a good thing to remember is that you know a lot of these kids are participating in something that's social as much as it is political, and they're they're okay. You know, they're I, my views were much different when I was nineteen or twenty than they are today. And they have the right to sort of, you know, get involved in this stuff and their views will evolve over time and that's okay. But yeah, um, we should definitely keep teaching about the Holocaust and make sure that 19 to 29 year olds understand that. And and for listeners, we taped an episode earlier today with Ricky where we talk about this. So um, I try to test her her sort of libertarian beliefs on, on and fire credentials on on this issue so it's a really interesting conversation so that'll air on thursday so you should check that out let's change course to talk about ukraine as we speak Zelensky is in washington essentially begging for support uh there was a really really excellent New York Times Daily episode this morning about how precarious the situation is in Ukraine. And I definitely recommend listening to that. They talk about what happened in this sort of counteroffensive uh, the Ukrainians had and why it failed. And, and what was interesting that I did not know before listening to that episode is the use, Russia's use, a couple, there were three things that stood out. One was Ukraine made a tactical error in spreading out its forces and trying to do too much and the U.S. had advised against that. The U.S. wanted them to basically concentrate their forces and take a smaller piece of the territory back. 
so that seemed to be mistake number one. Two other things that were notable. One is that the Russians have made uh, extensive use of landmines, which has made life really difficult for Ukrainians to try to take back t- territory, which is both horrible and also something that we're going to have to think about in a post-war situation because those are not easy to extract, as we know from the the Korea conflict. Like you know, I haven't checked recently, but even seemed like up until recently there was still pe- you know people still finding land landmines in Southeast Asia, and then third. Russia's using just like commercial drones in order to gain battlefield intelligence and apparently in ways that have been very helpful to them. And we're not talking about military grade drones, like uh, as it was described by the New York Times, it was, they're talking about like drones that you and I would have. And I think that is fascinating given where we are in this modern conflict, you compare it to what happened in Gaza with paragliders and everything. It's like, it seems like like the rapid development of technology and information is leveling the sort of military, you know, sort of the, the relative military power of different countries. And when you start to think about what AI could do in the future, it just makes you wonder, like, whether a lot of these battles, you're going to see more upsets on the battlefield in the future because of new technology that outpaces what sort of like the clunky Pentagon type stuff can can keep up with. Yeah, no, uh, the technological side of that particular conflict is super fascinating. I actually just saw the commander in chief of the Ukrainian military got interviewed in The Economist a few weeks ago and spoke explicitly about this. I mean, he basically said that they're in a stalemate and that neither army is making any advances or moves without the other one knowing about it. And until that changes, until there's some technological breakthrough in the war, we're probably going to be looking at what is effectively a stalemate. I mean, I think Ukraine has advanced a total of 11 miles on the front lines and much of their, you know, where their counteroffenses were were focused since the summer. They were expecting to advance about 20 miles per day when the counteroffensive began. And it's been two months and they've, it's been six months and they moved about, you know, 11 miles total. So from the United States perspective, I think from the global perspective, it's a really precarious spot because the second worst thing you can have, aside from investing a bunch of money and resources and political capital in this war and Russia winning the war outright, is basically what we're watching develop now, which is a drawn out stalemate where there is a huge number of deaths on both sides where the money keeps coming in and that money and those resources don't fundamentally change the contours of the war. Uh, that's interesting about the commercial drones. I hadn't heard that, but I'd seen some references to the general, you know, kind of technologically level playing field that both sides were operating on, including, you know, pretty standard rudimentary surveillance tactics that were effective, you know, in the sense that Russia is, you know, coalescing soldiers in some town in eastern Ukraine and their depot they set up is immediately bombed because Ukraine just has eyes on everything and vice versa. There just hasn't been a lot of movement and there hasn't been a lot of really successful counters in the war. And now we're heading into what is always a really brutal winter in Ukraine where the sheer weather, the temperature, the storms, the winter rolling in really slows down the fighting. And so Zelensky and these military advisors, I mean, they're saying openly 
they're basically just moving into defensive positions and getting ready to gut out the winner. They need to protect infrastructure. They need to make sure that you know electricity and fuel supplies don't get destroyed because they have to keep people warm. They have to keep you know houses functioning and the civilian population somewhat intact through the winter. And so it's in a really, really ugly spot. And I think um, of all the talking points coming from Republicans in Congress about where things are, I think the most cogent one they have right now is that we just put in, you know, billions and billions of dollars and look where it's gotten us. We should be negotiating an end to this as soon as possible and and finding a way out instead of just kind of this uh, blank check type future. You know, I think of of the two options of like just stopping our funding for the war and continuing to spend a lot of money in some, but a much smaller amount of money per GDP than a lot of other countries are spending to give Ukraine a fighting chance. I personally choose the latter because I think this is actually a a just and moral fight. But I definitely understand how your average American can look at what's happening right now and be like, my school around the corner sucks. Like we could really use 10 or $15 million dollars and I'm watching the government sign off on, you know, $100 billion or whatever it is to fund this war. And it's not really making a meaningful difference. You know, I think it definitely has made a meaningful difference. I don't think Ukraine's still standing without that money, which is important to remember. But we are in a, a standstill spot right now. And I think stalemate is a totally legitimate way to describe what we're witnessing, which is really scary. Well, you know, who, you know who wins a stalemate is is Putin. You know, like he will have essentially gained 20% of Ukrainian territory through this conflict. And he's not the kind of person who, you know, part of the issue is that Zelensky is now facing internal pressure because it's a democracy. And so when he, when there are massive civilian casualties, he has to answer for it. You know, Putin really doesn't have to answer for that. And there was a video that came out, I think it was this week, of Putin at an award ceremony in Moscow, sipping champagne, and where he said on the video, and this is obviously released deliberately by the Russians, he said on the video, there is no future for Ukraine. So he's essentially crowing at this point. And as we speak, Navalny is also missing. He may be dead. I I really don't know. Nobody really knows. And so Putin is emboldened right now. And Zelensky's on the hill begging for money. And right now, where where we sit right now, and this is at 2.42 p.m. on Tuesday, the Biden administration has sent for Congress a request for $61 billion in new funds for Ukraine, which would uh, was paired with $14 billion to help Israel and uh, $14 billion for border security. So it's a $111 billion package. And the Republicans are holding this up mostly over border funding. So the $14 billion that Biden proposed would pay for uh, 1,600 new staff in the asylum system to help speed up the asylum process. Schumer has pled with Republicans to come to the table and negotiate. He, uh, in, on December 6th, he issued an invitation to Republicans to write an amendment detailing everything they want. And he said that the Democratic Senate majority would bring it to a floor for a clean vote, whatever they ask for. Uh, that was rejected by Senate Republicans. And so David Frum had this column in The Atlantic basically essentially saying, when the Republicans are not even willing to negotiate at all, it makes you wonder what it is that they want. And Frum's theory is they don't want compromise. They want Biden to fail because they know the border is a big issue and they want to stick him with chaos. 
And they also don't want to deal with their own internal divisions over Ukraine because although like on a, on a clean vote in both the House and the Senate, the numbers seem to suggest that aid to Ukraine would pass, the Republicans don't want to deal with their own politics on this. That's his theory. Either way, it would be an embarrassment and a moral failure if the U.S. doesn't get this through, in my opinion. I tend to agree in the sense that there are always going to be downsides to these kinds of decisions. And it's easy to look at funding for Ukraine and just say, you know, every dollar that we put in, there's another day of war. But to just echo your point at the top there, I mean, Putin is not being ambiguous about his intentions and, you know, his his goals, his stated goals are not ambiguous. A lot of people, especially on the left these days tend to kind of reinvent what he's, you know, after and NATO encroachment and encirclement and all this stuff. And it's, you know, it's fundamentally about his vision that the fall of the Soviet Union is the greatest tragedy of the 20th century and that he's going to right that wrong by bringing Ukraine back under the umbrella. And he he doesn't care whether that's something Ukrainian people are interested in. It's it's just part of like a legacy defining goal for him. And yeah, it's also true that, you know, his tolerance for what we're witnessing is much, much higher than Zelensky's, at least based on everything we've seen. Actually, one of the quotes that kind of stuck out to me from that interview I saw with Ukraine's commander in chief general, Valery Zeluzhny, is, uh, you know, he said that his biggest error in kind of predicting how this war would go was that he expected the high number of Russian casualties to actually be a deterrent for Russia. And he said, that was my mistake. Russia has lost at least 150,000 dead. In any other country, such casualties would have stopped the war. But for Putin, it doesn't stop the war. And he's willing to lose those number of soldiers on behalf of this pursuit. So it's increasingly dangerous. And you know, I, I laid out earlier, I think, the best argument from conservatives. And I would say the best argument from Democrats or more establishment Republicans who are advocating for this funding is that any investment we make now is something that saves us the money and the soldiers in the future when Putin inevitably attacks or tries to invade a a country that is actually in the NATO umbrella. And I think that's a pretty fair read on the situation. I mean, certainly if this war had gone swimmingly for Russia and if Putin had taken control of Kiev and short order and killed Zelensky and brought Ukraine under his rule in a matter of months. I think there is no doubt in my mind that he would have begun looking to, you know, other former Soviet territories, countries, areas in the Baltic, whatever, and and started to think about his next move on the chessboard. So I do think Democrats are are right. And I think the establishment Republicans who are advocating for more funding are right that it should be viewed as an investment in never getting U.S. soldiers actually involved in a hot war, which is what will be required if a NATO country is ever really threatened or comes under attack. And that, to me, is the best argument to to help Ukraine win this war, is that it prevents that possibility from coming to fruition in the future. Yeah. And one thing's worth mentioning, as part of Biden's effort to gain support for aid to Ukraine, the U.S. declassified intelligence showing, uh, at least according to their claims, that Russia is determined to press forward with its offensive despite its losses. Uh, That's a direct quote from the National Security Council. 
And so, um, and the National Security Council spokesman, Adrian Watson, also said, it's more critical now than ever that we maintain our support for Ukraine so that they could continue to hold the line and regain their territory. So they're framing this as saying, like, look, this is not just about a counteroffensive. This is about defense at this point, too. And so I think if they're right, I know last time, like, you know, there have been a lot of conspiracy theories around U.S. intelligence and Ukraine and all this wag the dog stuff and all that. And there were a lot of apologies that had to go around at the beginning of this conflict by people who said that the Biden administration was drumming up hysteria before this invasion happened for one, you know, one, there's one conspiracy after another. And I had to watch like all these fringe internet sites with huge audiences either apologize or pretend like they didn't say what they said. Uh, and so I take seriously when the U.S. declassifies information. And I also know that that information that they're declassified, people on both sides of the aisle on the Hill have access to it. So if they're lying about something, people on the Hill would know about it because they get declassified briefings, um, this, the, the members who are on national security committees. So I take them at their word when they say they have reason to believe that uh, Russia would go on the offensive here. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's hysterics. And I, again, I don't think it, it's so, it's so fascinating. I mean, it's, it's one of these weird things that's happening in this current political moment that I don't really, I haven't come up with like a term for it, but it's this kind of invention of motive for people when they're telling you their motive, you know, um, I, I talked about this a little bit with the Hamas stuff in Israel, yeah. because, you know, a, lo a lot of people do this thing where Hamas says that they are going to go out and kill a bunch of Jews and martyr themselves in Israel. And then they go and do that. And it's very tied to a kind of religious extremism and like, um, you know, and jihadism. And then after the fact, you'll see people sort of invent motives for it. Like, you know, it's tied to something that happened in the Israeli occupation in the West Bank or whatever. And it's like, you know, you can make an argument, certainly, I think a, a good argument that support for groups like Hamas or whatever in Israel uh, is bolstered by Israel's actions or support for those groups in, in Gaza or the West Bank is bolstered by Israel's actions. But you don't have to invent a motive for Hamas. They're telling you why, why they're doing it. They're celebrating it. They're, they're saying it to each other. And it's the same thing with Putin. There's like, you know, the, all this stuff about, you know, the NATO encroachment and the, the potential that Ukraine was going to come under the NATO umbrella and it was aggression by the U.S. and the NATO allies. You know, of course, Putin doesn't like military bases being built up in areas like Ukraine or Poland or wherever else that are, you know, have Western and NATO and U.S. influence and money and soldiers. But he told us, he, I mean, he didn't, he wasn't like coy about what he was doing. He's, he, he believes the Ukrainian people are the Russian people. They're one and the same. I mean, he, he's been totally forthright about that. And yet we invent these kind of motives for his worldview. It's just totally bizarre. I don't know why people do it. But yeah, it's very clear to me that, you know, Ukraine is not the only country he views that way. And certainly if there was a frictionless way to go in and give him control over some of these other countries that have smaller militaries and less power and less funding, he would do that. I think, thank, thank God, Ukraine has proven that there is not a frictionless way to do that, but they're paying an incredible toll for it right now. Yeah, I mean, one little wrinkle in all of this too that I find interesting that we, we don't have enough time to talk about is that Hungary is blocking EU concerted action on this. And it just reminds me that this 
you know, I, I've spent a lot of time debating and discussing the EU and Brexit and all that over the years. And I continue to believe that the EU is way more complicated than I think the standard remain like friendly arguments in the US assume, right? Like you could still be like a remain person, but I think it's important to acknowledge that this collection of countries, there's a lot of countries there and that there are a lot of countries who have kind of, I would say very suspect motives. I would put Hungary at the top of the list that if if I were voluntarily associating with them, I would have a lot of questions. You know, I'm not sure I want to, I would want to hitch my sovereignty to Viktor Orban, you know? And so I, I, I continue to look back on this Brexit conversation and say, you could be for Brexit for many reasons. And one of them could be, you just look at the other countries that you'd be hitched to and say, man, I'm just not sure about this. You know, I'm not sure these are the countries I want to go with. Yeah, totally. It's a complicated situation in Europe, especially I think in the Western, through the Western lens, we view a lot of, you know, we think Germany, France, Great Britain, Italy, and sort of flatten them all into kind of a similar worldview and posture on the global stage. And even among just those countries, it's not the case. And when you extend it to, you know, places like Hungary or wherever else, it gets way, 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 way more complicated. So I think it's a, yeah, it's a sharp thing to sort of have an eye on and consider, especially as we watch how people, you know, where, what, what horses global leaders are betting on, you know, as the rest of this war unfolds. Right. Well, we were going to talk about this, David, uh, or uh, Mark Leibovich piece uh, that's called Trump Voters Are America Too. We'll just link to it in the show notes. It's really interesting. He basically makes an argument in very much his style that this sort of language that this is not who we are in reference to sort of the Trump forces, that, that sort of language needs to be revisited, <laughs> is what he's arguing. You can go look at it. We we're going to plan to talk about it. We don't have enough time. But Isaac, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody, uh, on Thursday, we've got three really fascinating stories. One is the university question around free speech, but then uh, two I would say super substantive issues that are not getting enough attention uh, nationally. Uh, and so you can you can tune in for that. But thank you very much, everybody. Uh, remember to go out there and rate, review, subscribe. Those five-star reviews and the written reviews and sharing with your friends, all very welcome. Uh, and we'll be back on Thursday. Thank you very much, everybody. Oh, and remember to subscribe to retangle.com.